And so we're talking about culture and values. And I'm like, hey, let's go around. What are your values? And one of the CEOs was like, I don't remember them actually. I think one of them is winning or something. I was like, if you don't remember your company's values, oh my gosh, like how are they values of the company? I Mine are like literally like inscribed in my heart. And it was interesting that there's a lot of CEOs out there who do this stuff because you're supposed to do it or attracts employees. And then people see through it. They totally see through it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. Of course. Have you been here before? Uh, been to Kleiner, yeah, a few times okay. over the years. Yeah. yeah. We missed on those or what? Well, I don't know if I ever pitched Gainsight, but I think that just friends over here over the years, coffee, things like that. Yeah, so cool. I've kind of probably been to every VC For 25 sure. years. So You've been doing the tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've yeah. been all around Sandal. Well, now most people aren't here anymore, though, so you guys still have the office. You think that's true? Do you think most people aren't on, especially in the well, venture community? I think a lot of venture, whether they have an office here they, a lot of people work out of San Francisco or they work from home, For sure. obviously. So I think these places are just le- less, even your parking lot right now, it's a little bit less busy, right? That's for and sure. Back in the you know old days, right? These parking lots were totally full. So In the heydays. In the heydays, the yeah. old days. The feeling of walking into the venture capital firm as a young entrepreneur going onto Sand Hill Road. Totally. Got to be pretty daunting. Oh, yeah, I did. But it. isn't that also the the mystique of it? Yeah. You know, like that's kind of the point in I think some it's, ways. It's funny because when I did my first startup was 1996. We started in 1996, graduated from college in 98, came out here and ended up raising money from Sequoia. And it was definitely daunting. I mean, we're like kids. How 20, old were you? 20 or something. Yeah. So. And so we walk into the Sequoia office and it's funny, we didn't even know who Sequoia was. We knew there's kind of a big deal, but they have all these plaques. You guys must have them too, of like the exits, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And they've the got, wall of fame. Yeah, so they've got, I don't know what, eBay or, I don't sure. know, not eBay. It was probably Yahoo and Oracle and Cisco. And we're like, holy crap, these guys must be good. Yeah. <laughs> then going to the board meeting in the conference room. I don't know if you know who Mike Moritz is. He's kind of legendary. He like walks, he wasn't on our board, but he walks in at some point. Actually, it's funny because, I was the head of marketing, like co-founder, and you know we had billboards on 101, and everyone did, right, back then. And Mike Moritz, I think the only time he ever said anything to me at that point was he walked in to like the board meeting, he just walks in and says, why are you pissing away all my money on billboards? <laughs> no way. Yeah, and it's funny because I was like, dude, everyone is right now. So there was a mistake, but I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know what it's like for entrepreneurs now, but my sense is they don't feel that anymore because there's such a power balance now. Like back then there was total imbalance, right? Like we didn't know anything about VC. They're kind of like intimidating, right? And now it's like, I have so many friends in venture and they kind of have to fight hard for the entrepreneur. I do a ton of references for VCs. And it's funny because it's not like the entrepreneur asking for a reference. It's the VC asking me to inbound to the entrepreneur and say, hey, you know, I heard you're talking to so-and-so. It's like it, Mike saying, you know, hey, ping this entrepreneur yeah, for me saying exactly. you, you want to work with me. Right. Type and thing. maybe they're not even in discussions yet or they might be in discussions, but they feel like, OK, they're talking to a lot of people. So now I feel like there's no mistake anymore. <laughs> all the information, the transparency, why combinate all this stuff is like 
especially if you're in tech already. I think if you're not in tech, it probably is a little intimidating because it is hard to break in. But if you're in tech, I think these entrepreneurs are so savvy and they're so empowered that they don't feel any imbalance. In fact, if there's an imbalance, I feel like at least the last few years of Story of the Entrepreneur, it's probably balancing it's now. It's probably yeah. equilibrating yeah, exactly. now. Yeah. It's funny, the comment that Mike made about the billboards. the billboards, there's actually something deep about that. Yeah. In hindsight. Yeah. Given the times oh, that totally. we were in. Totally. What he was saying. Do you agree? I mean, it's a little hard to say because it could be one that he just had an aversion to billboards more broadly. Sure. In fact, like funnily enough, 23 years later, we're in a Vista board. Vista's our, our main investor. We're in a Vista board meeting. One of my marketing leader at the time presents like billboard concepts. They're like, why would you do billboards? So I think billboards are like a symbol of like waste, yeah. right? I think that it's possible he saw the top, although realistically, if he had, they wouldn't have done all the all the investments after us, that's right? True. That's true. So if they saw the top, it didn't correlate with what they're doing. And by the way, that's no disparagement. Everyone had the same problem. That's true. Yeah. And most people had the same problem in 2022 as Correct. well. Correct. So totally. It's funny, on the billboard thing, I asked Matt Epstein, who's the CMO of Rippling, and you know Rippling, I'm yeah, sure. I know Rippling. I don't know Matt, but yeah. I know Rippling. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't know Rippling, well, if you've been around San Francisco at all, you've seen them everywhere oh, on totally. every bus Totally. Every, I asked Epstein, I'm like, hey, how many billboards do you have? My girlfriend and I are in a fight right now trying to figure out how many there are. That's funny. Because I get so gassed up every that's, time I see it. That's and such she, a nerdy fight, by the way. I know. It's <laughs> so lame. And I'm like, no, 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 no. But you don't understand. Like, this company is so special. Yeah. And she goes, I get it. And then I can't help. It's like a tick. If I see it, I say something. Yeah. By the way, that's the point. Right? Yeah. So anyway, I emailed him and I'm like, dude, how many billboards do you have? And so I started asking him questions about like, how does Parker think about the billboards? Yep. Da, 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 da. And his perspective was, dude, if you're asking about like ROIs of billboards, yeah. you're already going off on the wrong foot. Totally. Honestly, most of the best things in marketing are not measurable. So we don't do billboards, but we have a big conference every year. You can measure attendance, but it's really hard to correlate with things. Content, right? Hard to measure, right? Obviously, Google ads are very easy to measure, but if you have an enterprise sales cycle, people, people don't click on a Google ad and then buy. And so, you know, if you just look at the best marketing in history, let's just use the probably the best commercial in the history of marketing, which is the 1984 Steve Jobs ad. We shall prevail. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's yeah, incredible. Of ad. And it's like, what Mac sales did it drive? Like, how did you figure that out? And the truth is, there's no way to figure that out. But realistically, it is the most important probably ad in the history of business and the thing that put Apple on the map. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, my belief is, most marketing that's really valuable is truly not measurable because marketing is about changing people's hearts and minds, but especially their hearts. Yeah. And by the way, this is a big thesis we've always had. B2B marketing historically has been changing people's minds. You know, like download this white paper, or go to the seminar or whatever. My opinion is B2B marketing is about human beings that make decisions. And I believe human beings make decisions based on emotion and justify them rationally. So for example, if you're in a sales cycle or even a venture pitch, somebody comes in, you know, vendor comes in or whatever. And if you're the buyer, you're like, hey, oh, I really connect with this sales rep. I connect with their company, their values. 
And now I'm in the RFP or something. I build like a grid to compare the vendors, but I build that grid with the bias. And sometimes the vent, other vendors can kind of overcome that bias, but you have an opinion after that first meeting. And I know venture capitalists have an opinion like 10 seconds in. And then of course they justify it with some analysis. You guys do deal memos, I'm sure, but those are not the reason people buy. Now, if you have partners who don't know the emotion, they may have a more rational approach. They may say, hey, what's the TAM of this business? What's the revenue? What's the profitability? And that happens. But the person making meeting that vendor or that investment or whatever is making the decision a lot like a human being might make the decision about a life partner, right? Or something like that, which is you're not building a scorecard, right? And if you are, that's to justify whatever the emotions are. So I completely that, yeah, agree. Yeah. I completely agree. And even in the venture context, yeah. that's why partnerships are constructed in the way that they are. Because totally. there's one person that is really deep. Yes. And then there's another set of people that need to counterbalance that's right. a lot of the emotions that are tied into the that. The heart and the mind. I yeah. love the way you said that. That's yeah. a great way to say it. And by the way, that happens in companies too, because what ends up happening is you have this champion who comes in and they're like, I want to go with Gainsight. And then you know who that mind is? It's their boss and boss's boss. They're like, hey, why do we really need this? Are we going to be able to use it? They're asking all the rational questions. Yeah. They haven't met the vendor, so they don't have the heart. You know, they have the mind. Yeah, that makes sense. When you were doing the Sequoia thing, yeah. the company was called Chipshot. Chipshot.com, yep. And how old were you? How fucking crazy was that? Well, when we started in... 1996. And by the way, I was co-founder. Amr Goel was kind of the main founder. He brought me on in college and then two other guys, right? We're like, three of us were college classmates. The fourth guy was the brother of of Amr. And so we're doing the startup in college. And by the way, this is for a lot of people listening. You'd have no idea, like, because this, you're you're probably in elementary school back then, right? And so, you know, this is very primitive technology. I don't even know if the credit cards that we accepted were like SSL meaning secured, but we built this website in college and, you know, at some point it was doing like $50,000 a month, right? What did it do? What was it? What was it? It was basically golf clubs sold online. So chip shot, if you think about that. And then I wasn't even a golfer, but the two other guys were golfers. So golf clubs sold online, but they were kind of built to order, meaning you could say, I'm tall, I'm short, you know, here's my swing. And then you could actually customize your golf clubs. And we what we said in the business plan, again, this is a dated analogy, but Dell Computer was the first company that let you customize your computer. And so we said, we're going to be the Dell Computer of golf. And so anyways, we're doing the startup in college and it's doing like 50,000 a month in sales. And 50,000 a month is nothing if you're in venture capital or if you're a startup, but in college, that's a lot of money, right? And so we're like, oh, what should we do with this? And then we're like, okay, Let's basically do this full time. And so the funny thing was we had all accepted full time jobs. Like my co-founder is going to go to McKinsey. I was going to go to Goldman. Actually, I was going to go. I got an offer from Goldman. I ended up was going to go to it was a different firm that became uh, Credit Suisse. So I was going to go to Credit Suisse first Boston. And we all accepted these jobs. But I was like paranoid about like telling them that I'm not going to go. But we moved to California. We live in my friend's house, in his parents' house, work out of their garage. So kind of classic startup. You know, his mom would come home from work and open the garage door. And like, we would tell the customers on the phone that our new shipment just came in. It was really funny. <laughs> no and, way. But what's funny is I had this sort of paranoia. How do I tell this firm that I'm not going to join them? Now, here's what's hilarious. It's like mid-June or something. You know, you accept an offer. You start in August or something, right? And we're in California. We're doing this startup. And I see on the newspaper that day, by the way, there are newspapers back then. I see on the newspaper, like printed newspaper, 
executives from First Boston, Chris Suisse, go to this new firm. And then they invite me into this hotel to tell me about the new firm. So they're like, hey, come by. And you know what I do? I say, I'm not comfortable with going to this new firm. So I'm going to have to decline the offer. And it's funny because realistically, if I was taking the job, I shouldn't care if it's one firm or the other. But I, that was- It was your out. It was my out. And I was like, the universe card. is helping me here. And so anyways, that summer, we end up trying to pitch investors. We didn't know what we're doing. We meet this firm called Sequoia Capital. We go into their office, see all these plaques. And we're like, oh, this is probably a good firm. And then the interesting thing is, you know, we pitched them a couple of times. I think they came to our crappy little office. At that point, we have an office in Sunnyvale. The funny thing is, there's a guy named Don Valentine, who mm-hmm. is like the founder. He the passed OG. Away. Yeah. And so he's one of the OGs in venture. So he and a couple other people come into our office and we have this tiny conference room where you couldn't even fit the chairs. The chairs are jammed up against the wall. And we're pitching them and like telling them our story or whatever. And I think I start talking about marketing plan. And Don Valentine, kid you not, puts his head down on the desk and falls asleep. And we're like, oh my God, we're screwed. There's no way they're going to fund them. And then the associate calls us like later that day and is like, we're going to send you a fax for a term sheet. I was like, whoa, falling asleep during meeting apparently doesn't affect your ability to get funded, at least not during the dot com. So, and by the way, that might've been like all of us were falling asleep in startups back then. That might be a symbol of like that time. And by the way, 2022 could have been the same thing. Do you ever reflect on how differently your life could be if you went down the iBanking path? Yeah, totally. I mean, what's funny is you barely even fit the mold of a tech CEO. I know. Like you break every rule of business. Yep. How the hell would that have gone? Your outfit right now is electric. You're wearing (laughs) a purple shirt with blue flowers on it and your shoes- Purple shoes, there you go. Purple shoes. Yeah. I mean, like, you can't walk into a bank like that. I I mean, it's funny because that's 100% right. Like, I mean, I probably would have gone a couple years and then done something else. But I mean, I interned at making college. I remember that. And like interned at a good firm. And I really didn't like it. The work was probably fine, but I remember they have these things called road shows for people that don't know. And you go around and like back then, you like you fly on a private jet and you go to different cities and you try to raise money. So I'm on a road show for somebody, some firm, I don't remember. I'm on a road show and you get on this private jet, which I had never been on a private jet before. I was like, holy, this is cool. Like I get on this private jet and I walk on and I was just going to sit in like the front row or something because I was like, you know, they probably want to sit in the back. And the partner who is from that firm, he's like, I'm sitting across the way. And I was like, okay, I'll sit across from you. He's like, no, I'm going to put my feet up there. Can you sit in the back? And I was like, that's like how you guys roll. I was like, I don't want to hang out with you. Now, I know a lot of investment bankers. Now they're super cool. And I have no, nothing against them. I think it's a hard job. They constantly have to be selling and all that. But I was like, that's just not me. And by the way, like you said, tech CEO is barely me. I mean, I, the way I run my company, I feel really good about. But yeah, I don't feel like I fit into like any of this stuff. Therefore, you know, I'm a little different. Have you always been that way? Like when you were no. raising money from Sequoia, Sequoia at your 21? Yeah, yeah, I think I was 21. Yeah. 21. Yeah. You were at the end of your Harvard tenure. Yeah, I just graduated. That, just, just graduated. graduated. Yep. Did you feel permission to be like this? You know, it's a good question. I think that a lot of people over time get more awareness of who they truly are. I mean, in high school, you, you wouldn't even believe it. From kindergarten through 12th grade, 
I sat alone at lunch every single day. I couldn't fit in. I thought like people really didn't like me. I think in hindsight, I didn't really like open up to them. Um, but anyways, I was kind of bullied and, you know, I was different. I was like the one Indian kid in this very, in Pittsburgh, in this suburban school back then it was, you know, mostly Caucasian people and stuff like that. So I did, just didn't fit in. I literally was this introvert, right? And then I go to college and I get like a group of like nerdy friends that, you know, none of us fit in either. So I, those guys I'm still best friends with to this day. And then I graduate from college. I'm starting to open myself up more. Now, I was a terrible dresser at that age. So I look at those photos. I'm like, oh my God, that's tragic. Like <laughs> ill-fitting dockers and like a really bad polo shirt, right? Not even a polo brand, just like a really bad you know, shirt. In that way, I've, I've become really different. But I think over time, I got way more confident in myself and just learning about myself. I've done a ton of coaching, more recently, a ton of therapy. And honestly, I just keep getting more and more aware of who I am and comfortable with that. You know, there's some downsides to it. Like sometimes, to be honest, like one of the biggest things I feel is loneliness. Like I feel a ton of loneliness. Back when I was in school, it was like, literally I didn't interact with anyone. Now I've met tens of thousands of people. Like, I mean, a crazy number. Mm. But, you know, I feel like, wow, I'm kind of weird and different, you know, and like all the ways, whether it's dressing or like, being super into philosophy and not feeling like I fit into like the CEO mold. You know, I go to some of these events and you see these CEOs and they're like, they talk about their company. Like it's a deal. Like I'm working on this deal. Now I'm going to get an exit. I'm going to go to the next deal. It's just not how I think. And I kind of feel like sometimes like I'm wrong for all this stuff, but sometimes like I'm good at it. So yeah. I, I go back and forth. Naval has a quote, you know, Naval, I mean, never met him, but of course he's you know a who legend. He yeah. Who, legend. Doesn't? who doesn't? Um, he has a quote that says something along the lines of, Great people are built in solitude. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the point that he makes more broadly around that is just you're relatively unaffected by the path that everyone else is putting you on yeah. when you're in solitude. Yeah. You're like by default first principles based because you don't have all of these inputs that are then overwhelming you and your system with all the things that everyone else is telling all those people. Yeah. Which is the same set of shit. Right. Over and over again, that then just gets molded and shaped into contours that then come to you in a way that you can consume. But it's all the same sets of stuff yeah. that life tells people to go do, like going to eye banking. Yeah. Right. Like that's the path yeah. that you're supposed to do. That's the path that would probably make your parents proud. Right. That's probably the path that your parents are telling you to go do. Well, my mom wanted me to do be a doctor. A so doctor. let's just be clear about me that. Me too. But exactly. Now, me too. I think you're right. And it's funny because as everything in life, it's an evolution. There was a phase where like, I was like, I just didn't fit in like in school. Right. And there's a phase where I started to fit in. And then there's a phase where I kind of discovered a little bit of who I am, but I would say it's the exterior of who I am. So I don't know if you've ever done Enneagram, but it's a kind of personality mm -hmm. test. You get into one of nine numbers. I'm an Enneagram achiever performer. Growing up, I think there was definitely like a feeling of like conditional love a little bit. And I kind of inherited that. A lot of people on Enneagram 3 have that. So basically you're only loved if you achieve and perform. And so I had this like last, call it 20 years of like, for people to love me, I got to achieve and perform. So I figure out how to do that, be my own self and all that. So on stage, but it's kind of an exterior self. It's like the dress cool, make people feel good, make them laugh, be a really good speaker, be a good leader, right? I do all those things. I could be better, but I'm good at that stuff. And then I figured out, honestly, like this year has been really hard personally. And I figured out through some combination of therapy and medicine, stuff like that. I'm like, oh, that's a cool exterior. That's not actually who I am on the inside. Who I'm on the inside is like somebody who, 
feels loved and wants to believe in love all the time from somebody who believes in like just beauty and like gratitude and stuff like that. And sometimes your exterior can hide you from who you really are. And the more you understand who you really are, honestly, the more comfortable you are, the more you feel like you're itself. So I would say it's an evolution from like not fitting in all to figuring out how to fit in, but like a shiny exterior to now being good at that shiny exterior. I wouldn't give it up, but having something more knowledge of what I am inside. Why do you think a tough year forced that reflection in you? It's a good question. I think it became, it still is, really sad. You know, at some point you're like debilitatingly sad and you're like, I need help. So of course I got therapy and I'm I'm definitely like the person who kind of goes all in on whatever. So I'm like every kind of therapy, like therapist, psychiatrist, and like my coach who I've worked with forever. And then I'm not super religious, but learning about some stuff. And then like it's legal, but like something called ketamine therapy where you mm-hmm. actually take, I almost have to preface that with it's legal. Yep. <laughs> you take this like ketamine, it helps you open up and feel less anxious. And then some medicine that came out of all We invested that. in a company called Mindbloom. Oh, is that a ketamine thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's cool. And so basically this sadness and all this kind of stuff led me to this path of getting help based on my action orientation, which is leading me to like better understand the inner self. And some of that is kind of helping to like find ways to suppress the exterior being everything. And by the way, one of the challenges I think as a CEO or founder or whatever is over time, you start believing your exterior is everything. You start believing you are whoever you are based on the number of LinkedIn connections or the lists you're on or how much your company's worth, right? And then eventually you realize, oh, okay, that stuff is cool, right? Like that's really cool. And yeah, I feel super lucky and privileged to have had good financial success and all that. I wouldn't trade it, but that's not the only thing I am. And so that some of this stuff I've gone through is like, wow, there's a lot to, more to me than I realized. And honestly, I'm meeting this new version of myself. And I like the old version too. But I'm like, God, this new version is amazing. It took me 46 years, but I'm finding him. And I kind of love him, Yeah, you know? So. Yeah, well said. And don't you think that you were trained at an early age with conditional love yeah. to then need the validation totally. as your identity? 100%. And, you know, my parents are amazing. But, you know, there's this sort of immigrant kind of mindset, which is you come here and the people that come here often are like the achievers. And so it's about, you know, where you go to college and like your career and how much you've succeeded. Right. And they have those things in their head too. So I kind of think all the things we have are kind of, you know, they recur from generation to generation. And frankly, one of the things I've been committed to is, you know, with three kids and I'd love them to like, at least not have to carry all this baggage. And I'm sure some of it they're going to carry, but not carry all of it. And so there's a motivation, you know, with our children as well. My parents are the same way. First generation immigrants from Iran. And in some ways, I actually don't blame them at all. No, Because a lot of these external forces, let's just use career yeah. as like the shining beacon of yeah. it, were their tool to make it in this country. Their career was their number one avenue to upward mobility in Correct. life. Correct. Yeah. Which, by the way, I still agree with. Yeah. Like, I still agree with the principle yeah. that using your job as a tool to change your life is one of the most powerful forces, period, in this country. I totally and agree. And I think it's one of the things that makes this place so unique. Yeah. And I actually think we've lost sight of that to some degree. Yeah. It's how special a vocation can be in changing your life. And totally I think agree. The dark side of that, the challenge that comes with that is that when you've been using that conditional love to the extreme, then starts to 
blur a lot of things about who you actually are. And you start to rely on that as kind of a crutch to the external world. You got it. And I kind of think the two extremes are not great. So on one extreme is like, my job is everything about who I am and my exterior is everything about who I am. And it's about achievement. That's it. And the other extreme I think you're alluding to is a little bit of the last few years of work sucks. You shouldn't work too much. By the way, you should manage whatever you work, but anyone that works is like, it's like the thing you should avoid, right? Like, so how do we work less? How do you make it less part of your life? And honestly, like human beings get a lot of meaning out of work. I think about a society in the future that, you know, it's very possible with AI, we could have incredible abundance, you know, AI, nuclear fusion, it could be huge. And where will people get meaning in their lives? You know, some of the meaning could come from religion, some from family, but I think that you need work. People need things to do, right? And I see people that stop working and like, sometimes they go downhill fast. You totally. Know? Yeah. And, and that's my point on, I think we've lost sight of it, yeah. is that we are, generally speaking, just not very gung-ho about institutions today. Totally. And some of those institutions could be the institution of family yeah. or religion, but one of those institutions is work yeah. and a career. And I think that's too bad. Totally. Because I think it gives people a lot of identity and purpose and meaning yes. that I think we just lose. And maybe the question that I have around this that I keep asking myself is on this idea of kind of the anxious overachiever, yeah. if you will, the conditional love. I guess the question that I ask myself all the time is sometimes I wonder, can you be the person that you are in terms of like success and career? Like you just... Gainsight sold to Vista for $1.1 billion. Like you've done all of the things that like your parents couldn't even dream of when you were a kid. Can you disassociate the insecurity from the achievement? Meaning, isn't that some of the fuel? Isn't yeah. that a lot of the fuel that got you there is this idea that I'm not enough, that I need this from other people. And doesn't that push you in a way that otherwise, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't get pushed in that same way? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think about that too. By the way, I think going back to the point about my parents being proud and all that, I think they still don't understand what Gainsight does. So they, by the way, most people outside of B2B don't, so that's fine. But I think this point about a feeling of impressing others, impressing your parents, overachieving, being on magazines and lists is a way to feel far, for sure. I mean, and probably a huge part of a lot of people's drive, particularly early in their career. And then I think there's a different thing, which is like, oh, I really know myself, right? And I'm doing these things because I really feel like they are things that help other people and give them joy. For example, my motivations at Gainsight now are radically different. It's like, oh, these people at Gainsight are amazing. How do I like help them have meaning and purpose in their work. And I love my customers. Literally, the word love shows up all the time. I even love my investors, which I know some people are like, how do you love a private equity firm? I'm like, I do. And I want them, you know, you look at it and like, oh, this person is like, yeah, private equity investor, but they're trying to move up in their career. They're trying to impress their parents. Mm. It's like, wow, I can help these people by being grateful and loving and then using some of the skills I built over the years. And so I think there is another way. And actually, you know, honestly, you've talked about Naval uh, Ravikant. It's like, I don't know him, but he exudes this, I'm doing it not to impress other people. I'm doing it because I believe in it. And I think there's a lot of really great entrepreneurs and just people in lots of walks of life that are doing things not to impress other people. And actually, interestingly enough, 
that's sometimes the most impressive thing is people that are doing it like not to impress other people, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of, you look at sports. I'm a huge football fan, right? And you could say there's definitely like that stereotypical like wide receiver who's like on Instagram and trying to impress people with this flip in, you know, in the end zone, right? And then you pick these like players that have played for a long time. And I'm not a Patriots fan, so it's hard to use him as an example, but Tom Brady, I'm a Steeler fan, so it's hard to say Tom Brady. But, you know, towards the end of his career, I don't think he's trying to impress anyone. I mean, how can he impress anyone more? He's like the greatest player in the history of football. He just like loves the work. And I think love of work's a big deal. Yeah, but it strikes me that enlightenment around some of these concepts tend to always happen whenever someone's successful. Yeah. Meaning, I just think it's I don't think really, it's easier to do that earlier. I think it's really hard yeah. to be like, I don't give a shit what other people yeah. think. I don't care how everything goes. I'm not doing this for anybody else. I'm doing this for myself. When you're like not on the other side of having made it than being able to look back. I think that's right. Although I, I want to go back to one of your points that you made, which I think is a huge point. One of the big challenges in modern society is we have this kind of abundance. Not everyone does, by the way. A lot of people don't. But the people that have abundance have sort of become extremely individual or individualist. Like it's just me and like what I want. And therefore, they're not connected to institutions. Like they are cynical about them, right? And I think the thing that's hard is if you don't have any connection, right? So I respect people that are super religious and they may not feel like I got to do it my, for my career because they do it, you know, for God or whatever, right? I respect people that are super family oriented and they're like, I'm going to do it for my family, right? I respect people that are like, I'm in government service. I'm just going to do it because I believe, you know, think about people. I always think about like CIA, right? And actually one of my employees, his dad was CIA agent. He didn't know that his dad was a CIA agent for decades, right? And they were like in South America and like, he just thought his dad worked like in South America. And that person could never tell anyone what he does. And even to this day, couldn't tell anyone what he really did. And like, it's a funny story where he would tell my teammate, Peter, he'd be like, his dad would say, ask me about this in like 50 years because then it will be unclassified, right? And so it's funny. I think those CIA agents, they're not trying to impress anyone, but are they successful? For sure. They're protecting us, you know, things like that. So I do think if you believe in institutions, whatever it is, you can actually have motivation without just saying I want to impress people. But I think that it's hard when you don't believe in institutions, then you're just focused on yourself. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm not going to go into how isolationist it feels to me when all of a sudden your job is now based wherever too, where you don't even see people Correct. in this it's community. More. It's right? more. It's in this community. I think it becomes really, really difficult. And not to get too romantic about it, but that's why I'm in the line of work that I'm in. Yeah. It's because I think that startups and high growth companies are such an incredible community. I totally agree. It is such an amazing way to find purpose. Yes. And the thing that I have been very frustrated by is that there's so many companies in our line of work, just say tech companies, yeah. with amazing margins, the world's best businesses that we've ever seen. Correct. They are like 90% gross margin businesses that double yes. like year over year. Yes. You know, with net retention, meaning they just grow if you do nothing, basically, Correct. 50% a year. Yeah. They just grow. And so Gainsight's customer success software, yeah. right? Nobody fucking wakes up thinking about customer success software. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. maybe you do. I do, actually. Maybe you Most do. Days, yeah. You do. But, like, you weren't born that way. No. That wasn't your calling no. when you were young. Everyone is making up all of these things that people can get behind. Yes. And I'm like, wait, 
why don't we just get behind this startup? Like yeah. this incredible business that because it's so amazing, because the raw ingredients are so compelling, it gives us amazing latitude yeah. to change everybody's lives. And maybe that's financial. Maybe that's career oriented. Right. Maybe that's just a group of people doing something really fucking hard together Yeah. over a sustained period of time. Why can't we get behind that? I just feel like there's something in there that I find very compelling that I think others would too. I love that. And it's funny because I appreciate you opening the door and swearing. So I'd say I fucking love that. Uh, I really do. And it's interesting because if I just relate a story to that, we make customer success software. Like you said, it's great. It's awesome. It helps people in some way. And that's awesome. But when we're early in our company, we're like, trying to do the startup things like what are, well, we did our values very early on, but then later on we're like, what's our strategy? What's our purpose? That kind of thing. There was actually a template from a book called Scaling Up and you have to like fill out all these boxes, like values, which we had done, strategy, goals. And one of them was purpose. So what's the purpose of Gainsight? And, you know, we Googled that, you know, Jim Collins talks about a lot, who's a famous business author. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically it was like, the reason why a company exists, right? Like not the what, but the why. And we're like, well, I don't think it's like customer success software for two reasons. One is like, that's not the thing. And two is like, we could do other stuff over time, right? So that's not the thing. And I don't think it's just like making money or taking it public or like you talked about margins. For some people, that's what it is. And that's great. Like I think about hedge fund people or whatever, good for them. But for us, it was something different. So what we wrote down, which honestly became the thing that really does motivate us, is a bit of an experiment. The phrase is, to be living proof, you can win in business while being human first. That's like literally everyone in the company all the time we talk about it. The idea is basically human first is the idea that like, let's not lose sight that like in this company and in our ecosystem are human beings, right? Like the people in our company or have families, they're, they're anxious about their careers, they're anxious about money, they struggle with things, we help each other out. And our customers are human beings, like they're doing business with us and people say they're a deal or a renewal, but actually they're just a human. They're trying to move up in their jobs. They have the same thing. Our investors are human beings, our competitors are human beings and like not losing sight of that. But then the idea is, can we do that? and still win in business? Can we still be a successful company that grows and is sustainable? And then to be living proof, because we'd love to prove it, right? It's an experiment. Honestly, a lot of people would say it's impossible. A lot of people would say even where we got to, it would be impossible. I actually have friends who say, that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Is that real? Like you just want to make money and grow. I'm like, honestly, no, like that's cool. It's really cool. I've been really fortunate on that. But the thing that motivates me is this, is it possible to build this community? And to your point, I think one of the things that's hard is as you grow, it's easy to lose that, right? With 10 people, it's easy. 100 people, a little bit harder. 1,000 people, a lot harder, right? And I think I'm, what I'm proudest of at Gainsight is if you can ask everyone there, I talk to every employee that leaves and joins, why are you here? You know, what's special about Gainsight? Every single person is, it's the values and human first. You actually live it. It's not just a marketing pitch. You know, and that's kind of how we roll. You know, and by the way, like pick a real specific example. I'm super transparent with everyone. So we've had a lot of a lot of personal stuff this year. I tell everyone about it. And literally this past week, I like I have a weekly email of the company and I always have a personal thing in the email. And sometimes it's like just a simple thing, like, you know, we went somewhere for vacation or camping or whatever. This week was, hey, I've had a hard personal year. I really want to focus on my taking care of myself and my family. I'm not going to travel much the rest of the year. Historically, I'd be like 10 days a month or something. And I'm like cutting back to like two days a month. Only the things I've really committed to, mainly like some internal events. And every speaking engagement that's travel, I'm going to give it to somebody else. Every dinner, 
give it to somebody else. Try to be home. And so I told people that, by the way, there's two benefits to that. One is I'm just open, but two is then other people feel permission to take care of themselves as well. Can I ask, why are you doing that? For myself. Why? Why do I share it? Why are you cutting back like that? Like, uh, it's just, we've dealt with a lot of stuff. Not, not all of it I could share, but like a lot of personal stuff at home and you know, my dad passed away, all kinds of things. There's a lot. I mean, just this year has been a lot, yeah. not just for me, but everyone in our family. And so I want to be there for everyone. Like yeah. I've, I'm there for my company all the time. And I feel like I've been in this 11, almost 11 years. So I'm like, you know what? I earned the right to take care of myself too. Yeah. I totally respect that. Your glass door reviews as a CEO are fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Thanks. I've never seen anything like it. The adage that the founder and their DNA is just permeated throughout the company, that one felt very relevant to you and to Gainsight. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, I talked to companies, I just talked to one of our former employees and he's at a super hot company. And he has values that are very aligned to ours because he worked with our company for like four years. And he's like, I'm in this situation where I've got my team, I'm trying to lead them, but you know, this person like a VP. And then there's a CEO who's a great person, but like totally different values. And he's like, I can't shelter that team from what's happening in the company. And so that's the challenge is the CEO, they always say he, he or she sets the tone of the company, right? Like sets that kind of feeling. And it sounds very abstract, but what it means is, Whatever that person is doing, the manager can't countermand that. Now, on the flip side, it's the, it's the inverse too. Like whatever the CEO is doing, if the manager isn't great, then like the employee's not happy either. But it's impossible for the manager to do what they want if the CEO isn't aligned with that. And one of the things I think is really tough about companies that the only complaint I have about some businesses is where the CEO says one thing about their values or whatever and just acts a different way. Mm. It's funny, a little anecdote early in the startup world, I... At first, you know, early in the Gainsight world, I would kind of organize some breakfast with other CEOs because I want to learn from that. I love learning from other people. And so we're talking about culture and values. And I'm like, hey, let's go around. What are your values? And one of the CEOs was like, I don't remember them, actually. I think one of them is winning or something. I was like, if you don't remember your company's values, oh my gosh, like how are they values of the company? I Mine are like literally like inscribed in my heart. Mm. And it was interesting that there's a lot of CEOs out there who do this stuff because you're supposed to do it or attracts employees and then people see through it. Mm -hmm. They totally see through it. I completely agree, yeah. which is why I'm like, stop making shit up. Totally. Stop making it up. 100%. Like figure out what you care about Make that the thing. And by the way, it's okay if it's winning or making money. Like it's just, that's why I always say like hedge funds are super authentic. You know, you don't go to hedge fund and be like, you know, I'm trying to make everyone happy or whatever. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you, at least if you watch billions, that's my only knowledge of hedge funds. Really. But if you, <laughs> you're like, dude, it's about fucking making money. Right. And if you're not making money, you're fucking out of here. Right. Totally. So yeah. Wouldn't the knock on all of that be like that you can't be taken seriously, right? Yeah. Like, oh, Nick, you're in it for all the fuzzy feel goods, totally. right? Or, oh, Nick, you're not dressed like I thought you would be. Yeah. You know, you're in a flower shirt. You're wearing purple shoes. You know, right. like that insecurity. Does lonely growing up, Nick, does that kid ever pop up in your head when you do this stuff? Yes. And what's funny is early on as a CEO in my last company, I remember going to board meeting and you know, I think they gave me like 360 feedback, which is super helpful. I love doing that. And one of the things that one of the board members said is we'd love Nick to have more gravitas. And I don't, I'm like, I don't even know what that word means, but I think it means like acting like a CEO, right? Being a little more formal, being less casual, being less personal, dressing in whatever at the time was the right thing. And 
I, over time, actually, literally, I remember being like, what's gravitas? Talking to people, I was like, F- gravitas. That's not me. The thing that differentiates me is like being myself. And so over time, it kind of like became more and more. I was like, wow, if I were, am myself, I wear whatever I want to. Like everyone loves it. People love it when you're yourself. And I continue that journey to this day. I'll tell you a funny story. You know, we did this conference called Pulse every year and it's become like the industry event and customer success. It's awesome. You know, thousands of people. The first year of Pulse was like 300 people. It's this little hotel ballroom. And I go up and I give the typical Nick made a speech like, high energy. I think I walked on with a football helmet. I don't even know what I was doing. Right. And then the speech and it's like funny and whatever, but I was like, I need to grow up as a CEO. So next year, 2014, I'm like, I'm going to hire a speaking coach. And so she listens to me and she's like, Nick, you talk too fast. You're too high energy. You'll need to get a little more serious. And by the way, read off the teleprompter. Okay. So I write off, write up my speech for 2014 and you can go on Google on YouTube and watch it. It's the worst thing I've ever done. Because I am not that person who reads off the teleprompter, is serious, doesn't make jokes, is not high energy. I go back 2015, 2016, 2017, and they just keep getting better. Another example, I close our conference every time with a moment of vulnerability, kind of channeling like Brene Brown. So I've talked about with thousands of customers I'll never meet, being lonely as a kid, depression, not feeling like I'm enough. My dad, who unfortunately had dementia and he just passed away. I've talked about all that in front of all these people that don't know me. And you know what? They love it. They feel more connected to our company. They feel like more real. So I've just learned that it works for me. And honestly, I just couldn't do anything else. I can't be anyone else but myself now. Mm -hmm. Can I revisit Chip Shop for a second? Yeah. What happened? Yeah, (laughs) we did this thing, you know, venture capital, raised for that time like a crazy amount of money. But for anyone listening, they're like, that's not much money. It was probably 40 million bucks over a few years. Company grew to, you know, 30, 40 million in sales. At that time, we're like talking about going public, which again, that wouldn't happen now. But back then, companies went public at smaller sizes. We're talking to bankers. It's funny because we're talking to bankers. This is like 1999, early 2000. And it was really funny because we're talking to like Goldman or something, right? A top banker. And then Morgan Stanley. And then we're talking to JP Morgan. And then we're talking to like Bank of America, also good bankers, but there's a bit of a pecking order. And then we're talking to some like online IPO thing, right? We like kind of fell down the rankings. And then the same thing with like investors, we're talking to like probably you guys or someone else, right? Top investors. And then at some point we're talking to some random like firm from like some random country or whatever, right? So anyways, we weren't able to raise another round. We weren't able to go public. By the way, we had hired a CEO. Because the bottom was falling out Bottom's so falling out. And we had hired a CEO and kind of a professional management team. So we were still there as kind of doing different co-founder things. But we hire these people and they're great people. But, you know, you probably know in these bubbles, people come from like traditional industry, big job. They jump into startups because they're going to make tons of money. This happened in 22 as well. Right. And they lost sight of just the financials and we ran out of money. I mean, I remember like the startup started a dorm room, became really hot. We had billboards. We were on TV commercials, like literally NCAA Final Four. Just chip it out. I can get through there. Watch. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I guess I should have chipped out, huh? Custom clubs for greater accuracy. Chipshot.com. Four! And then at the end, we literally took all the golf clubs and sold them in the parking lot. I don't know if we went bankrupt or whatever, but we had to get that money from the golf club. So we're literally selling them in a parking lot, you know, the chip shot sale, and then that's it. It's over, you know, and I'll talk more about it potentially, but I had to get a real job at that point and things like that. But- did that make you more or less excited about startups and company building? I would say at the time, 
like a little more depressed because 2000 and that time frame kind of sucked, right? Like it was very depressing. Then 2001, 9-11, you know, I went to another startup briefly that didn't work out. I didn't found that one. And so I was still into it, but I was kind of like, actually, I met with Mike Britz. I remember, you know, such a great guy, but he basically, I had done two startups and he's like, look, you got to go do something that is, you know, you know, it's going to be successful. Go to bigger companies. I went to this company. It was like 5,000 people called Veritas. And I was like product manager, you know, effectively like working in the basement, not actually, but you know, effectively. And I was like, I love technology, I think, but I don't know how this is going to all work out. But I, I had some confidence. I moved up. And then over time I was like, oh yeah, I'm good at this stuff. Right. And I was in this big company and I thought I could be a CEO and stuff like that. So it kind of came back, but I think people listening, like, you can lose some of your mojo, right? It's very possible. Mm. And obviously, hopefully you don't lose all of it and hopefully you get some breaks and you can come back. But it's hard, you know, as you as things don't work out, it's really hard. And I talk to entrepreneurs all the time now and just so much empathy because, you know, they worked on this thing for five, six years and it's going under now. They're trying to sell it and, you know, it starts out, I can sell it for 50 million or 100 million. And honestly, some of these folks are like aqua hire, you know, sell the assets now, right? You know, what's funny is, I have seen doubt on both sides of the success, meaning yeah. I have seen incredible doubt after you sell the first one for parts yeah. or nothing, it goes under, where he or she thinks, I am not good enough yeah. to do this. I have also seen the flip side, where someone like you sells Gainsight for $1.1 billion and they think, how can I recreate that. Yeah. Like I'll never be that good again. Yeah. Was that a fluke? Was that luck? Was that the right timing? Was that just the right product in the right market? And I sold at the perfect time. So I've seen doubt on both ends. And that's actually why I have so much empathy and respect for these for the it's thankless. Yeah. It's literally it's such a mental game. I totally agree. I think that by the way, I think we should have empathy for a lot of people way less fortunate. So for sure, uh, you know, but it's good to have empathy for everyone. I appreciate that. And I think that if you go to the Gainsight one, one thing that got lucky for us is we just like sold a big stake to an investor. You know, I've been doing the, you know, running the company two and a half years since then. I've never been more excited. So I would say it's a little different than if we'd sold it to a big company, in which case the movie is kind of over. The movie's like, honestly, our culture is the best it's ever been or <laughs> Glassdoor is the highest it's ever been. And so all these things are going well. But I think the doubt is legit. Can this ever be big? Can I really be the right CEO for the next phase? And by the way, I think some people tap out because of that and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, like I talked to an entrepreneur six months ago and he's like, I'm struggling. Like, am I the right CEO for the next phase? I was like, I don't know. But, you know, I, I think there's probably not anyone better than you because you're so passionate about this, you know? So I think the doubt is real and it comes and goes. So there's doubt about your company. There's doubt about, you know, viability. There's doubt about the economy. There's doubt about you, you as a CEO. If you feel doubt, you're not alone. After Veritas, you go take another swing with a company called Live Office. Yeah. What happened? So I got hired to this company. I didn't found it. Okay. Summit Partners Investor. They kind of like do yep. sort of mix of private equity and growth equity. And this was sort of a, a business started by two brothers and one of their friends. And they're great people. And they had bootstrapped it for a long time, meaning they didn't raise any money. And then they did this deal with Summit where they kind of had Summit come in, you know, similar to a Vista deal. And Summit was like, at some point was like, hey, it'd be great to bring in an outside CEO. You know, they knew me and brought me in. And now this company was different where they had been run for a long time as sort of this family run business. And they wanted to transform it into a true SaaS company. 
And so I basically came in, we probably had a million bucks of SaaS revenue. When I came in, we'd grow it to 25 million in maybe three years or something. So it was good growth. At that time, market multiples weren't as what they are now. So I think we sold it for like $115 million, which is nice, you know, obviously financially good. It wasn't like the home run that probably I was aspiring to, right? But it was great and it was fun. And I think one of the biggest things was I got a lot of confidence in that I can do it right. And with Gainsight, I was like, I can do it right from the beginning. One of the things that's great is like you do something beginning. Downside is you have all the mistakes to blame for yourself, right? Upside is like you can make it your own. The values, the culture, things like that. And so it has been so great with Gainsight because I just feel like it's my thing. Like, it's interesting because I think you do something a long time. It's almost inseparable, like you and Gainsight. So people are like, how's it going with Gainsight? Do you like Gainsight? I'm like, dude, like it's a manifestation of me. Not only me, of course, we have so many people. But if you say like the person that is most manifested there, it's me. And so it's sort of, they always say it's like your baby or whatever. And it is, it's not the same thing as being a parent, but it becomes the thing that like you're bringing your life into the world, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you're really into it. Right. And did you feel like you could only have this human first orientation around your leadership style when you were the founder? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something about doing it from the beginning, right? Where you do it from the beginning and you feel that empowerment. You have to do it, right? You have to figure it all out. There's no existing culture and legacy and things like that. And it's funny because I don't know what I'm going to do. Like at some point there probably will be an after gain site at some point it just happens. Right. And I'm like, I don't even know if I could do another CEO job, especially hired in. I'm like, you know, I'm very fortunate. I could probably get some CEO job and maybe something substantial, maybe bigger than gain site. Who knows? But I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'll change my mind, but I'm like, I don't know. Cause this is my heart's in this thing and something else. It's not your whole heart isn't embodied in the company. So I have a lot of respect. You know, I think you had Bill McDermott on this you know, show who's amazing, you know, coming into service now, being at SAP, you know, all these guys, Frank Slootman, these guys are amazing. But I don't know if I feel the same way as them. Don't you think that this year, as you're exploring this new manifestation of Nick, company building is your version of like art. Yeah. Like you're like an artist in this way. And don't you think that you're going to want to represent you want companies to be the manifestation of that new Nick. Doesn't there some version of excitement for you that I think tickles you inside as you explore this new you that you want to emulate out into the world through companies? There's no way you're not thinking about that as you're finding out what this Nick is and pushing that to the edge of the boundary that you think, boy, if I brought this into the next company, and I'm not saying that's happening now or in five years, but there will be a next at some point. Just like, man, could we be even better? Could I be better and then represent myself, then thus the company in a more authentic way? I don't know. Such a good question. I think there's multiple pieces to that, the way I think about it. One is very valid, which is, you know, there's a term called prisoner of the moment. And it's where you like think everything in the future is going to be like now. And the truth is you keep changing. In fact, I've changed a ton. So it's like not rational to say five years from now, I'm going to feel like I am now. Right. And so, especially if you're going through personal stuff, it's sort of really prisoner of the moment. So I think that's like one legitimate point in the future. I might feel different. The second point is I do think that there could be things that get me excited Right. And frankly, it could even be things that are even in the the what of the company. Right. Like I'm super interested in things like nuclear fusion or all these kind of deep tech things. I think you guys might invest in some of them. Right. I think that's really interesting. So there could be something different where I it's not just the why, like in terms of the values and stuff, but it's actually the, the what that would mm-hmm. be cool. Now, I would say just as a kind of a 
something that I've thought a lot about. So I remember some investor, some firm saying, hey, Nick, you know, would you want to be a VC? And I'm incredibly fortunate for somebody to even ask, right? That's cool. And I was like, well, but you're not in the company, right? You're helping these companies, genuinely helping these companies, but it's a different feeling than being in it. They're both good, like being in the owner's box of a football team versus being on the field. They're both good. And I was like, I want to be on the field. Like, I just want to. And I was like, out of curiosity to this investor, what do you do for that feeling of wanting to be on the field? And, and, he, and literally, he answered very honestly. He's like, oh, I do woodworking, right? And I was like, that's cool. Well, but I was like, I want to do something where like that thing feels like real. And so for me, it kind of got me feeling like whatever I do, I want to be all in. And the last thing I'll say is, I am all in, like whatever it is. So for Gainsight, like Gainsight's not the biggest possible company in the world or the biggest idea in the world. It's not. There's all kinds of bigger ideas and bigger companies, but it's mine. And so I am all in all the time. People are like, hey, would you ever, you want to do something else now? I'm like, no, no. I you know, sold to Vista. No, I don't want to do anything else. This is mine. Eventually it'll come to an end, sell it or whatever. But for now it's mine. And so I think that's something that I am somebody who is all in, in everything I do. When you did sell for the headline of 1.1, walk me through, like, is that the valuation of the company? It's unique to see a high growth company go into, and Vista is unique. Yeah. I I would not consider them private equity in the ways that I would consider some other firms. And I think there's a negative connotation, at least in our world about that. Yeah. How did that yeah, tell me about that. Oh, it's such good. I'll tell you both what practically and then also the feelings. Yeah. So I think it's all this stuff is feelings is important. So practically, you know, it's actually become much more common. You know, Sales Loft, Drift, they're part of Vista. There's a ton of venture back companies, especially because the IPO window is much either closed or much harder, higher bar. And so practically, you know, we were at something like 90 million of ARR at that point. Well, like it's going to be a long slog to an IPO. It'd be great to take you know, money off the table, get our investors a big win. And so that was great. And by the way, we didn't know if Vista was going to be interested. Then they reached out to us. We're like, oh, that's cool. My CFO and I were like, hey, it'd be great for Vista to reach out to us. And so they did, you know, and they were great. And they offered something really compelling. That was kind of an unsolicited offer. And so what that means practically is, you know, financially, everyone in the team is really taken care of and we accelerate everyone's options. And so that part was amazing for me, but also for all the people in Gainsight and our investors, you know, Series A had a great return and B had a very good return and C had a good return. And, you know, D&E, they were able to what's called roll, meaning keep some of their equity going forward. And so that was kind of practically what happened. And Vista gets a chance to make some money and everyone gets a very practically, everyone gets kind of what's called reloaded, meaning more options. So actually there's a tremendous chance to make even more. That's great. That's not the only motivation, but you can't ignore that. And by the way, if you look at it, a lot of companies go public and then they go private again. A lot of my friends have like taken companies public and they become private like a year later, especially with the market right now. Now, the emotional side, I think, is quite interesting because we did this deal in like December of 2020 or something like that. December of 2020. Yeah, December 2020. COVID was still going on, but there was sort of a- A bit, year into COVID. Yeah, a year into COVID, but there was, as you probably remember, the rebound in tech kind of started really in like June of that year or something. Yep. Actually, it's funny because I think- Alex Conrad at Forbes kind of got the jump on it and he was going to like write before even our employees do. And, but then he was real kind. He, we gave him the exclusive and he wrote, but in the article, they talked to somebody and that you know, anonymous person said, Oh, I'm surprised they sold for only 1.1 billion and like a few different things like that. Like only, and you can imagine back then startups are raising at a $10 billion valuation or whatever. Right. right. And so what's funny is then the next year, the stock market roared, right? And my CFO and I were like, gosh, maybe we shouldn't have sold. This company might be worth three or 4 billion right now. At that time, in that moment, had you sold? On paper, it would have been. But on paper, 
And so then all that stuff came down and public companies came down a lot, especially last year in 2022. And now I'm kind of proud that like, we're probably one of the best actual cash returns for some of our investors because a lot of them just didn't get out, you know? And so now I think 1.1 billion is pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think before it was pretty good and maybe 2021, 20, 22, it was okay. So, you know, life kind of changes like that too. You know, you can say, okay, honestly, I feel great because now we can make it worth a lot more. So, yeah. And did you sell the whole company? The way it works is you said, we probably sold like 80%. Yeah. And then like some percent was our existing investor. Some percent was like new options for the management. I kept a decent chunk in the company. Yeah. That makes total sense. One of the things that I thought was very cool that you do is you use a tool called Coda. Yeah. KP Company. Oh, KP Company. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Shashir is a friend. Yeah. He's great. Stud. Amazing. In doing your breakfast with CEOs, learning like how are you spending your time? Correct. Like asking people how do you spend your time? And you went down this rabbit hole of how do you spend your time? Yeah. And how do you want to spend your time? Can you talk about that? Yeah, totally. So, you know, years ago, I think I read an article and it was probably something like quoting a Harvard Business Review or something. And it just talked about like the pie slice of how CEOs spend their time. And what was funny to me was the pie slice in customer stuff was like 4% or something like that. So 4% of the time they spent time with, you know, customers or prospects, wherever. I was like, wow. And then I told my chief of staff at the time, I was like, can you do the analysis for my calendar? I'm just curious because I spent a lot of time with customers. I probably do literally customers and prospects like 20 meetings a week, a huge number, like, you know, whatever that is per year, maybe a thousand meetings a year. And so I said, Hey, can you do this analysis? My chief of staff at the time did the analysis. And I think my Mine was like 25% or something like that, right? And so then I was like, oh, let's do the rest analysis. Where did I spend my time, investors, whatever? And so I did that and I was like, that's cool. And you know, I think we did it one more time and later on. And then I said, wow, this is interesting. I wonder if other people would value analyzing their calendar to say how they spend their time. And what my assistant and I did was I color code. So, you know, I think, by the way, if you don't do this, you should. Very simple thing. And so I kind of have a color for potential customers, existing customers, employees, investors, and so on. And now, you know, we can do it anytime we want. And Coda actually made that cool. So hat tip to Shashir and the team there. You know, basically you can load your calendar in. There's a tool. There's a tool. And then you can go on Coda right now. You can look for my name. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. And then you can do your own analysis. 20 customer meetings a week? Yeah, it's crazy. In hindsight? Yeah. Would you do that again? I do it now. I still do it. I had like three this morning. <laughs> so here's the reason why. Great question. Number one. 20 meetings? Yeah. Four yeah. hour long meetings a no, day? No, no, no. I am 30 minutes and sometimes I'm 15 minutes. I'm very good at like trying to get stuff done quickly. Okay, 30. Okay, fine. So eight yeah. 30 minute meetings? Eight a day? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a decent... No, I don't think 20 a week, so it wouldn't be eight a day, but yeah. It'd be... It, yeah, four a day. Four a day, but sorry. Yeah, yeah four a yeah, day. Yeah, but basically, yeah, so let's say two hours a day. And so the way that it yeah, wor yeah, works right. is, number one, most important, I learn. So I learn so much about the market. I share all of it on Slack with everyone. Almost every day I post on Slack who I met and who I learned. And that's so good. Like what's resonating our message? Why do they buy our product, et cetera? That helps with the strategy, being empathetic to our team. Number two is I can help. Yeah, I'm pretty good at it with customers, with prospects. I think it can help. Being the CEO helps. Having somewhat of a brand helps. That's great. Number three, I love it. I love connecting with people. And some of that's probably like the loneliness of childhood, all that, right? But I really enjoy it. This is fun talking to you. And so whether it's talking to customers, talking to employees, talking in this podcast, it's fun. I think I'm the person who doesn't like 
sitting with a whiteboard on my own for four hours. You know, I like, you know, Jack Dorsey, I think that's famous blog post about, you know, how he spends his time. And I think Paul Graham had one too, about like the maker versus the manager schedule and you should block tons of time. I'm like, yeah, if you're an engineer, probably that's great for me. Like even strategy, I want to do it in a group. So I think I like people. And I like talking to people. Maybe it's again, making up for some childhood loss. Yeah. And can you talk about the ghost note system that you yeah. have? So this is also in Coda and it's incredibly effective. So what we do is for our sales team and our customer success team, they have various reasons they might want me to engage, right? Could be like, it's a competitive deal in sales. Could be like, we want to get what's called get higher, meaning have executive sponsorship in a deal. It might be an existing customer that's kind of like, they've gotten disengaged a little bit. Could be an existing customer where there's upsell opportunity. So in all those cases, our sales and CSM team has this way to kind of draft an email that you know, would be sent from me, but has a little bit of context. Hey, so-and-so, our teams are talking about buying Gainsight or whatever. What I've heard is this, you know, we're talking to these people on the team. I'd love to get on a call with you and just chat about it and share some of the things I've learned or share best practices or whatever. Sometimes I'll put my blog posts in there. And that is incredibly effective. Now, I don't know what the, I want to actually measure what the hit rate is on how many people take meetings. Over the years, it's gone up a lot because I think I, more people know me online and stuff. And so it's probably probably like 75% of people. Wow. Take, yeah, it's a high percentage. Or they take a meeting or they respond and get us connected to their team or whatever, but something useful. And so that's very effective. And what happens is they draft that. I never want an email to go out without me reading it, but I draft it, they draft it and then I edit it. You know, sometimes it's like, they're like, Hey, I'm Nick made of the CEO of Gainesville. It's like, Hey, I've known that person for 10 years. I better not say that. Right. And sometimes it's like, I can change the voice a little bit. <laughs> Every now and then there's typos. I'm like, come on, no typos people. Right. And so I edit it and then I send it and then my assistant's always copied and then, you know, schedule a meeting or whatever. So that actually is really effective. And you know, we send probably a couple of those out a day and, and then beyond those, like, some customers want to talk to me. They'll reach out and take, you know, one night I talked to this morning, it was like, hey, Nick, I want to tell you some of the cool things we're doing with Gainsight. I was like, that's awesome. I want to learn that. And so we did a call right before this. Do you ever worry about being too much of a crutch to the yeah. organization? Yeah, totally. One of the things that I worry about is I don't want to make this company too Nick made independent. Totally. Right? And that's a real issue. Now, what do I do about that? Well, one thing is building brands of other people. So for example, Kelly Capote is our chief customer officer. She is amazing. She has similar things to me where she loves talking to customers. She's great at it. So I think having her brand be built up is huge. And you can imagine a company like Gainsight, chief customer officer, that's like the role we sell to. So she's really important. Some other folks kind of building their brand. Now, not everyone is as easily able to do social media. Like it's kind of one of those barriers. And for me, that's definitely where I've gotten my name out there, LinkedIn and so on. And so I'm trying to help them. You know, one of the things I have, they do a weekly report for me. I'm like, what did you do on social this week to kind of promote yourself and the brand? And so some people are doing that a little more. You know, Kelly's doing that a little bit. And so one thing is get the brand out there. Another thing is really get them to understand the strategy. And so that's where we'd spend a lot more time on strategy, trying to share it with them, trying to share the knowledge of customers with them, right? A third thing is having a really good planning process, right? Where we're super aligned on what we're doing. And then finally, developing people to be potential future CEOs, right? CEO of Gainside or whatever. And so Kelly herself is going through this CEO training program that Vista offers, which is amazing. And, you know, I'd love her to be CEO of, you know, maybe it's not Gainsight, but some company, you know, and so really investing in that as well. When all this goes away, you must now, especially that you feel like you're developing kind of a coaching tree, yeah. if you're a football fan of right. people that go could go Walsh. be head coaches, yeah, exactly. right? 
I know you've thought about when this is all gone, especially because you've delivered the promise, totally. at least financially in yeah. a lot of respects, to a lot of your stakeholders, yeah. whether those are employees or investors. You've had a tough year to your point. These are all very natural moments of reflection, not to mention the two and a half years we were stuck at home, basically. Yeah, totally. Right? Like, when you think about all of these customer calls going away, all of these things that you do in groups, all of this identity. Yeah, that you're manifesting through your company, then I think you have it the hardest because you are the company, Yeah, to your point. When it all goes away and everything's just quiet and still, do you think about that? Totally. And I think that that's something, you know, kind of my personal development this year, kind of realizing that there's something to me that's not just about the exterior and that thing is great and like I love it, et cetera. But trying to really lean into that, literally the last few years, I've always had this little kind of aphorism in my head, which is I can't imagine Gainsight will ever end. And I can't imagine Gainsight being my end. In other words, the only thing I do, and there has to be something after Gainsight. And you know, everyone, like whoever you're listening to, there's something beyond whatever you're doing now. There is. And so, you know, one of the things I've thought about is like, would I do something again? We talked about a little bit. I've always had this dream of like doing a PhD in like philosophy or something. I'm super into like philosophy and science and things like that. Maybe make my mom, mom proud at some point. And so I've been like doing something completely different would be pretty interesting, you know? But I think you're right. When the spotlight goes away, when the connections go away, when the people aren't reaching out to you anymore, I have a lot of friends who've, you know, you see, oh, right, you will have breaks. You sell a company, very fortunate, you take a break. And it's hard because they're like, what do I do now? What's my identity, right? Like you can only play so much golf and take so much time off or, you know, work out so much or hang out with your, like you can only do so much. Now I will say some CEOs I've met have really leaned into it. Like Dan Springer was a CEO of DocuSign, CEO of Responses before that. I remember when he sold, I think Responses, he said, yeah, what I did was I just, became a great dad with his, I think his son who was graduating from high school and spent like three years just doing that full time. I've talked to a lot of people who've done that, you know, if they weren't not the primary parent, the kind of leaning into that, you know, leaning into your parents and stuff like that. And I think to your point, naturally at some point that might at some point be like, Hey, I want to do something again. You don't know what you're going to do, but I do think it's hard. I think everyone I talk to is like, yeah, it's emotionally hard to go from all of this stuff. People are like, Oh, I can't believe all this email and this activity. How do I deal with it? But you know what? When it's gone, that's hard too. So we got three kids, 17, 14, 11. And when you're a young parent, you know, when young kids, people are like, oh my God, how do I get through this, right? And then when your oldest, about, she's just graduated from high school, she's going to college in, in a month, it's really hard. You're like, wait, how would we go on? And then when you're, all your kids are gone, which I have some friends who are empty nesters, it's like, wait, the house is super quiet. You have all this time now, which feels great but it's lonely. It's empty, you know? And so I think both of these are very similar. You have to find something after it. If you have empty nester, you, there is a life beyond that. If you sell your company, there's a life beyond that, but it's probably a bit of a walk in the desert to figure that out. Yeah. As you have more time now, especially since you're not traveling and stuff, yeah. are you reading philosophy? Books? Well, it's funny because at night I do try to read I mean, last few months I've probably cut down a little bit, but I'm trying to read and I love reading. I've, I've literally read 15 books about consciousness, right? Like what is consciousness? Where does it come from? Super serious? Yeah. I've read like probably 10 books about what time is and because in physics, it's a little unclear what time is. I've read another 10 books probably about physics. So yeah, I'm super interested in a little bit of like philosophy and science. It's kind of like the philosophy of science. And I think it helps because 
then at night you can be like, there is another world. You know, there's a world beyond SaaS and ARR and churn and billion dollar valuations. There's another world, Yeah, you know, and that's not a better or worse world, but I think there's some balance in figuring that out. Are there any dots? I'm really curious that you've connected from science and philosophy into company building. Absolutely. And by the way, they're oversimplified. Any scientist listening would probably throw up when I hear these. Of analogies. course. But like I wrote this blog post a while back and it was like, this is so nerdy. One was software is more like quantum mechanics than it is like classic physics. And basically the idea was in classic physics, there are rules and like the world is fixed and everything affects everything in some ways. It feels predetermined. But in quantum mechanics, it's much weirder than that. What you do influences what happens, right? I use an example, Benioff, right? And, and you know, obviously Salesforce has gone, gone through some challenges now, but it's undeniable what he created. And he took like CRM as a category and made it like everything, business intelligence, data, marketing, et cetera. He didn't live with the idea that there's a law about what CRM should be. That was a big thing. Now, the other one I, I love is there's this paradox called the ship of Theseus. It's this famous old philosophy thing. And the ship of Theseus is this, very simple. Theseus is this person who defeats the Minotaur in Crete, in Greece. It's a legend, right? And for Theseus, to celebrate him, they build this ship, this wooden ship, okay? Now, Theseus eventually dies, and the wooden ship is in the water. So, you know, a plank rots, and like you replace it with a new one. A plank rots, you replace a new one. The sails kind of break, you place a new one. At some point, the ship has been completely replaced. Is it still the ship of Theseus? And the same thing's true with companies. You know, at some point, there's a different employee. Like, you look at Gainsight now. I mean, there's, from the beginning, there's probably like 10 employees that are still there, right, from 10 years ago, right? And we, our procs are totally different, you know? Is Gainsight still a thing? Now, I'm still there, but at some point, maybe I won't be there. And is Gainsight still a thing? I'm a huge Steeler fan. What are the Steelers? Like, the players change every year. The coach changes every, you know, 15 years. You know, what are the Steelers? It's an identity. It's an idea. What's America? Right? It changes all the time. And so this idea of like, what is a company? And it's an idea. It's a set of values. It's a concept. It's not like the people or the products or anything else. I think it's very well said. Thanks. What's something people think about you that you fundamentally disagree with? I think they think, <laughs> again, this year, I am unbounded optimism and never have any challenges. And I'm always positive. And on the exterior, that is 100% true. And on the interior, there's lots of struggles. And even not just this year, there's lots of anxiety and loneliness and things like that. And I kind of mask it, right? Like I'm pretty good at masking it with the colorful clothes and the entertaining presentation and the positivity. And it's fun sometimes to just reveal your own challenges and who you are. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Last thing, I think it's really cool on the weekends. I don't know if you still do this now. But you delete all your work apps from your phone? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, it's kind of weird because I should use like the Apple profiles or whatever. I take some joy and solace in like literally turning off all the email accounts. You did this like in the heyday of Gainsight? Yeah, I've been done it seven, eight years. And delete LinkedIn, delete Slack, delete Twitter, everything that kind of reminds me of work. And I still have my computer if I had to check something, like I could go back to my computer if I need to. But when I'm out with the kids, there's nothing to interact with. There's nothing to think about. It's not just I had to keep my phone in my pocket and I had to try not to take it out. It's like, if I took it out, there's nothing to do. I literally take it out because we play like trivia games at dinner. That's why I take it out. 
but I don't take it out for anything else because there's nothing to do there. And so people say trying to be present. It comes naturally if you just don't have anything on your phone. Yeah. It's like not having snacks in the kitchen. It's yeah. A lot easier that's a great analogy. Snack. It's a great analogy. Nick, I appreciate you doing this. It's really fun. This has been awesome. Are you hiring? Is Gainsight hiring? Yeah. I mean, a little bit. We definitely are in that like EBITDA mode now. And obviously we hired a lot. Are there any key roles? We're hiring customer success. We're hiring in a little bit in sales, although we're trying to see kind of keep that aligned with the market. Right. And I'm sure there's a few other key roles, like operation, things like that. But over time, we will be. I think one of the things I was actually talking to somebody at Microsoft last week, executive there, and he's like, they so overhired that they're just trying to like grow into like the headcount they have totally. now. So I think everyone's sort of in this, and I feel so much for job seekers, right? Because it's a hard time when you're looking for a job when most companies aren't hiring. So we will be hiring, but right now, not a ton of hiring. Yeah, makes sense. Last one, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of what comes to mind? Well, it's funny because Angela Duckworth, I think, wrote the book. Yep. And she says, passion plus perseverance. And it feels true because it's like, look, I think I have some grit. And like, it is like this belief in what you're doing, right? Like that's a passion. And then just slogging it out. And by the way, enterprise software is to, like anyone you talk to has worked in a while. It is a total slog. It's not like maybe consumer where you can get a hit and just takes off. Every day you grind out the customers, you grind out the quarter, you grind out the profits and grinding is honestly, I like it. It's fun. Nick Maida, thank you. Amazing. This is honestly one of the most thoughtful podcasts I've ever been a part of. So thank you. I appreciate it, man. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.